Well, last week we started a conversation, and I threw out the idea, if we read the entire Bible and tried to find first things. Remember C.S. Lewis? Life is made up of first things and second things. Get the first things in place. The second things follow. What would be the five first things if we were to read the entire Bible? Well, the first one, my first of the first, was we need to reclaim a sense of God's awe, that in a world in which nothing is sacred, let's find something sacred about communicating with God. And some of us did this prayer um, corrective where we didn't have casual prayer for a week. We uh, made prayer times where we lifted our arms up. We did a warm-up even before we went before God's presence. Now, today, I give you all back casual prayer. You can pray on the elliptical. You can pray while walking your dog. Just remember that what you're doing is a sacred moment with the God of the universe. Now, what would be second of the first things? Well, let me set it up this way. When I observe life, I often think that there's people who dabble in stuff, and then there's hardcore enthusiasts. A friend of mine, John Lundy, he teaches at Biola, we go mountain biking, right? We just put on cargo shorts, a t-shirt, we throw a water bottle on our bikes, our mountain bikes, and we go, and we're having fun up in Carbon Canyon Pass, but then people pass us, like these guys in like these aerodynamic body suits, you know what I mean? And their bike is like, you know, gears and all this kind of stuff, and their water bottle is like perfectly... Um, keeping it cool, and John and I are like, okay, we're not that. I, I drank tea. I take a Lipton tea bag. I throw it in some hot water, and when it turns color, I drink it. I have friends who are like, oh, Tim, you barbarian. Don't you know you're supposed to steep the tea for like 10 minutes? You can even buy a, a cover online that properly steeps your tea. And I'm like, okay, that's not me. I'm not that kind of a person. I worked in New Jersey for a summer with Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, Down at the end of the boardwalk was this place called Attila's Gym for hardcore weightlifters. They had a one-month ad that you could go in and do one month for a certain price. So I walk in. It's called Attila's Gym. Had a picture of a Hungarian Viking with a man's severed head in his hand, and you walk in, it was like crazy. This was hardcore weightlifters. And so I, I did it. I paid for a month. I thought, I wonder if anybody can tell. I've lifted weights in the past. I wonder if anybody will be able to tell. Well, I walk in there, and you know, we're lifting weights. I was having a great day. I'd actually put weight on the bar. I was having a great day. And a guy next to me, unbelievable, this guy next to me. And there's mirrors everywhere, right? So when you finish lifting, you look in the mirror. I was learning that. And so we're standing there. This guy was huge. His abdominal muscles spelled mom. It was <laughs> unbelievable. Small objects were rotating around his biceps. They were actually hitting me. It was annoying. So I'm standing there. We're looking in the mirror. You know how your eyes just kind of go up and down each other? And I decided to try humor. Uh, our eyes went up and down. And I looked at him and I said, don't be discouraged. I've been at this a lot longer than you have. <laughs> He did not laugh. (laughs) To this day, whenever I lift, I have a car running outside, always on. (laughs) He knew I was not hardcore. What's interesting about the New Testament, Jesus is in the last few days of his life. It's called the Upper Room Discourse. He pulls the disciples together and he says to them, in a world of religions, in a world of Gnostic beliefs, right, occult practices, I'm going to tell you what it means to follow me. I'm going to tell you that there are people who will dabble in following me, and I'm telling you right now there will be hardcore followers of me. And here's the litmus test. 
And he gives them a very interesting way to tell who really does follow me. And it's in John chapter 13, 34 to 35. And he says to them, a new command, take note of that, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, um, theologians have been a little bit stumped by the first part, a new command I give you, because the command to love each other is not new. It's all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, the book of Leviticus says you shouldn't just love fellow Jews, you should love the foreigner as well. So this isn't new per se, but he says it's new. Now, John also wrote 1 John. In 1 John, he doesn't give us an answer to the riddle. He just notes that he's created the riddle. He says in 1 John, he says, listen, this was the word that was among us, right? We interacted with Jesus. We touched Jesus. We saw him live out his life. And then he says, a new command I give you. And he goes, it's not a new, it's an old, but again, it's a new. But the new is fulfilled in him. So this is what I think John is saying. If I were to say to you, hey, it's really good for you to do 50 push-ups. So go ahead and do 50 push-ups a day. And then about uh, a year later, I come back and I say, hey, by the way, it's really good for you to do 50 push-ups. You'd be like, well, thanks. You already told me that. That's not a new command. Right? You've already said that. But what if I say to you, oh, and by a push-up, this is what I mean by a push-up. And I model what a proper push-up is. So in a way, it's an old command, but I've now given you a completely different standard of what that push-up looks like. doesn't mean you weren't doing push-ups in the past. It means now there's a new standard that I'm calling you to. What Jesus says to the disciples is, I want you to love one another. Nothing new about that. That's the Old Testament. But when I say love, this is what I mean by love. And looking at the life of Christ, we see a radical life of self-sacrifice. So I teach for a Biola's apologetics department. There's a lot of reasons to believe in God and a lot of reasons to believe that Christianity is the way to get to God. Jesus takes all of his apologetic strategies and puts them in one basket. He says, people will know that this is authentic. In a world of pluralism, they'll know that you're, my Christ, you're a follower of me if you sincerely love each other. Now, doesn't that sound great? Theoretically, that sounds awesome until you actually try to apply it. Right? My favorite C.S. Lewis quote of all time is this. Isn't that great? Everyone thinks forgiveness is a great idea until you actually have something to forgive. Right? Hey, I'm I'm all for loving people, but not my um, person I work with. Come on, that's crazy. Or not that uncle or a family member or a church member. See, I'm not going to do it there. It's fine theoretically, but trying to apply it can be very difficult. Now, one thing to be encouraged, uh, if EV Free has conflict, it's nothing new to the church. Churches always struggle with conflict. In calm theory, we call it the inevitability of conflict. You can't do life together and not have conflict. You can't work at a business and not have conflict. You can't have a family and not have conflict. And you can't have a church this size and not have conflict. It's all throughout the New Testament. Take a look at this. Um, Make my joy complete, Paul says to the church at Philippi, by being like-minded, united in spirit and purpose. Then, he says, by the way, Iodia and Syntyche, I want you to live in harmony in the Lord. These are obviously two female leaders, and Paul has gotten word they're not doing well with each other. Take a look at this. To the church at Corinth, Paul tells believers at Corinth that they have been called to be holy together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nine verses later, he says, and I've heard that there's quarrels among you. And I've heard that you're taking each other to court. 
Okay, by the way, Paul wasn't immune to conflict, right? Uh, Paul and Peter had conflict. Uh, Peter made this interesting decision that he was no longer going to eat with Gentile believers, just with Jewish believers, and Paul says, no, sir, you're not doing that. We're not dividing the church Jew-Gentile. They had to work out that conflict. So you have conflict in your family? Guess what? It's part of life. You have conflict in your marriage? It's part of life. We call it the inevitability of conflict. But what do you do with it is going to set us up as Christ followers or people who just dabble in religion. Forgiveness is that wonderful moment that shows if God is really the Lord of your life and second, you have the power to actually enact forgiveness. So Paul's going to tell us to put off some things, and whenever he tells us to put off some things, he tells us to put on some things. So here's what he tells us to put off. Get rid of all bitterness. Two interesting words. Rid, get rid of it, means to get rid of any trace of it. It means in the Greek. The word all in the Greek means all. That's why they translated it that way, right? It's all. Get rid of all these things. Bitterness is number one on the list. Why? Bitterness is anger that has cemented over time. Aristotle, writing on bitterness, said there is no harder person to reconcile with than a bitter person. Over time, you've become embittered towards this person. It used to be that you had positive thoughts towards this person and negative, but it was balanced. Now, all you do is have negative thoughts. We call that tunnel vision. Right? I can actually block out the entire sun with my thumb because as I look up at the sun, my thumb is big enough to blot out the entire sun. Well, I can look at a person that I'm, I'm no longer uh, think positive thoughts about and their negatives outweigh all of their positives and I lo- no longer see any positives about this person. It's all negatives. Right? That's bitterness. We have got to work against that. Why? Because it leads to rage. What is rage? It's an outburst of some kind. Right? I mean, you can't keep that in. You're embittered towards a person, it's going to bleed out. And you'll find yourself, either mentally, right? a person walks in the room. That person walks in the room and you're like, oh. Seriously, nothing they can do is right. They walk in with a Bible and you're like, oh, look at the Bible, how big that Bible is. What are you doing, showing off? Come on, we all know you have the Bible. It's like, are you serious? Yeah, it can get that bad, right? You're just all negatives all the time. And that rage comes out. Um, brawling, your translation might say clamor. But by clamor, we mean, um, uh, you know, slander is right there next to it. Slander is when I say something to you, right? I'm going to slander a person say something negative. Clamor or brawling, as the NIV uses it, is when it affects a whole group of people. So, yeah, I can start to talk to people individually, but after a while, now a whole group of people starts to think negatively about another group of people or individuals, and that's called clamor. In case you just missed it, Paul throws in malice for free. Okay, so get rid of bitterness, get rid of rage, anger, brawling, slander, and malice. You should have good thoughts towards your brothers and sisters in the faith, not negative thoughts. Now, why does Paul focus on anger? By the way, one of my five, which is coming up, is Satan. If you would ask the New Testament believers, hey, pick your five, Satan is for sure one of their five. It is crazy how the, our church, the modern church, we just don't give um, uh, enough attention to Satan. Satan is throughout the entire New Testament. Jesus attributes a ton of stuff to spiritual warfare, so does Paul. So we've got to be aware that Satan knows exactly what's happening in this church. There's no doubt probing our weaknesses in order to get a foothold. How will he get the foothold? This is what Paul says. 
Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Why? Because it can cement and become bitterness. Paul isn't saying deal with your conflict within a 24-hour period. Deal with your conflict before the sun goes down. That would be crazy and maybe even inappropriate. You can't resolve conflict that quickly. But deal with the anger before the sun goes down. Why? I give you 10 psychological reasons you should do that. Paul gives you one spiritual one. Because it'll give the devil a foothold if you become embittered towards another person. So we need to nip this anger in the bud, but most of us just don't know how to do that. How, when I'm filled with anger towards a person, do I actually deal with those powerful emotions? So Paul says, I want you to put on these things. He says, be kind and compassionate. Notice the word be. He didn't say act kind. He didn't say act compassionate. He said be compassionate. In communication theory, we call that um, surface actions, deep actions. If you want to know the difference, just imagine a Christmas family photograph that doesn't go well. And you've got surface and deep acting, right? We've all been there, right? The kids are all there. You're tired. You're frustrated. You've got a photographer and you're already late to dinner. And the kids aren't cooperating. You're saying, listen, just smile right now. On three, let's say Jesus and get out of here. (laughs) But I'm not happy. That was not the question. The question was, act happy. Right? One of my uh, relatives, every Christmas when we were young, we'd give us socks. Socks for Christmas. Every time we're driving home, they're saying, Mom, this is ridiculous. She's like, shut up. You take the socks and you look that person in the eye and you say, thank you. But I don't want them. I say, thank you. That is surface acting. Deep acting is, hey, you ought to be thankful. Your relative thought of you, right? They didn't have to, but they thought of you, right? Paul isn't saying, hey, put on your happy Jesus face on Sunday. Sweep all of these problems you're having underneath the carpet and just put a God is good all the time slogan on it. He's not saying that. He said, I want you to actually be these things. What does he want us to be? He wants us to be like Tim Yohoff. No, he wants us to be kind, right? This is a sweet disposition towards a person. You know how that is. There are certain people that walk in the room and you're just like, oh, it's so great to see you. It's just awesome to see you. And there's other people who walk in and you're like, oh, oh, it's awesome to see you. It's great to see you. But you're not, right? So, no, a kind disposition. Compassionate is very interesting in the Greek. Um, In the Greek, it actually has to do with your stomach, your intestines, is how the ancient Greeks viewed it. In other words, you'd have this powerful emotion in your stomach. That's kind of where we get the English uh, saying, uh, a pit in my stomach. I kind of get a pit in my stomach. What they mean by this is your situation, what you're facing right now, all the troubles, literally causes a reaction in me. I feel a pit in my stomach thinking about all the difficulties that you're going through. You know what happens when you get into intractable positions? I no longer am compassionate towards your struggles. If anything, I might say, well, you deserve those struggles. Right? Acting like that, you deserve it. Karma. Christian karma. And you're experiencing that right now. No, we need to be compassionate towards the struggles of individuals. Uh, forgive, uh, here, it, here it comes right now. Forgiving each other... Just as in Christ, God forgave you. What are the two most important words in that verse? In Christ. Listen, Paul is a good psychologist. Paul knows this. I can tell you everything you need to know about forgiveness, but if you don't have the motivation to do it, it won't work. My wife and I are going to speak in Sacramento next weekend. We're going to speak at a family life marriage conference. We can absolutely show people techniques of how to resolve conflict, how to listen, how to find common ground, how to be compassionate, empathetic, sympathetic. But if you don't have the motivation to do that, 
You're not going to do any of the techniques. I can sit with a student at Biola University and I can say, here's how you should study, but if they're not motivated to do that, it doesn't matter what they just learned. Paul says, listen, none of this is going to matter unless you're motivated to do it. Then he provides us the motivation, that is, in Christ, all of this happened. So let's zip over to Philippians, and we're going to take a look at Paul's motivation to forgive. In Philippians, he says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with a God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now let's break this down. First, being made in the likeness of men. So remember last week's sermon, the awe of God? Remember, we're talking Isaiah chapter 6. We're talking the seraphs who fly around the throne of God and say, holy, holy, holy. Um, Remember, we're talking Moses in front of the burning bush, right? The great I am in the form of a burning bush. Well, the great I am, the God of Isaiah chapter 6, just took on the form of a human being. Craziness. Do you know Muslims would laugh at this point? Muslims would say, there's no way Allah in all of his glory and transcendence is ever going to become a human being. That, that, Allah would not stoop that low to visit human beings. By the way, even his prophets cannot be killed at the hand of an infidel, according to Islamic theology, right? So there's no way Allah is coming to earth. Well, God came to earth according to the scriptures. Now listen, if I were God and I'm coming to earth, I'm coming to earth as the top politician, the top philosopher, the top statesman. I mean, I'm going to have an entourage. If I'm God coming to earth, I'm coming in first-class conditions. But that's not true. Jesus comes as a bondservant, right? So that means I'm here to serve you. A bondservant in the New Testament was indentured servitude, right? You had a master. Well, Jesus is saying, I didn't come for you to treat me like royalty. I came to pursue you and to be your servant. Then it goes on. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Death. That's ridiculous. At this point, a Muslim would simply say, so, let me get this straight. Allah comes to earth and is killed at the hand of an infidel. There's no way. A prophet of Allah couldn't even die at the hand of an infidel, let alone Allah. There's no way God's going to die. That is Christian theology. Perhaps the most... um, mysterious part of our whole theology is that God died 2,000 years ago on the cross. Uh, Max Licato said this, what do you do with a God who would rather die than be without you? I mean, what do you do with a kind of God like that? Okay, so God's going to die, right? Paul then adds, my goodness, he adds a piece of information that floored everybody in the New Testament. He died on a cross, right? Uh, Remember, Deuteronomy says anybody who dies on the cross is cursed by God. So he's dying on a cross. Do you know when Rome incorporated the crucifixion that uh, Romans were barred from being crucified? It was too barbaric for a Roman citizen. The only way a Roman citizen is getting crucified is sedition against Rome or you murdered a fellow Roman. That is the only category by which you could be crucified as a Roman because it was beneath Romans. Cicero, one of their finest statesmen, said this about the crucifixion. To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder to crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe such a horrible deed. No Roman is getting crucified. And yet, Jesus gets crucified. I mean, it is amazing what held him on that cross. Right? By the way, what was his reaction? A stoic reaction as he dies on the cross? No. He says something that was so scandalous 
that it actually turned people off to Christianity. Here's Jesus on the cross. What's he saying? All is well with my soul. Right? No, he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? By the way, we actually use that as an argument, that phrase, to say we didn't change the Bible. We didn't change the New Testament. We didn't rewrite it and got rid of all the bad parts. If we were actually doing that, rewriting the New Testament to get rid of all the embarrassing parts, you better believe Peter would have had a vote. Peter would have said, by the way, get behind me, Satan thing. I'd like to X that out right now. Let's get some white out. Let's get rid of that because that kind of bugs me. And by the way, we got to get rid of Gethsemane. Here's Jesus claiming to be the Messiah. He's face down on the ground saying, God, if it's your will, remove this cup from me. We've got to get rid of that. And we've got to get rid of him up on the cross saying, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Messiahs don't do that. They don't talk like that. But Jesus did. Now, what kept him on the cross was you. You were worth it. He loved you. What does Hebrews say? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy? You. You were the joy. He knew each one of you. Jesus died for the entire world, and he died for those uh, of his children. He knew it would become his children. He knew you by name. Each one of you. What kept... Christ on the cross was you. Now, I know some theologians have a problem with us saying, if you were the only person alive on earth, Jesus still would have died for you. I think that is supremely biblical. If you ask Jesus to describe God's love, he's going to give you a couple stories, right? He's going to say, when a woman loses one coin, what does she do? Tears up the house to find the one coin. When a shepherd loses one sheep, what does he do? He leaves the 99 and goes after the one. When one of your children goes rogue, prodigal, what does he do? He runs towards the one. It's always the one, the one, the one. Jesus absolutely died for all of humanity, but did it person by person. So he knew exactly who you were. If he knew when a sparrow falls from the ground, he knows the people he died for. Now, here's the question Paul's going to ask us. Is that enough motivation for you to forgive? All that forgiveness that happened 2,000 years ago, right? 2,000 years ago when Jesus died, how many of your sins were in the future? All of them. He died for all your sins. Past, present, future. My goodness. He died for all of them. Some of you wrestle to actually believe that. Right? No, you don't do penance. You're forgiven. God's love for you won't increase or decrease. He loves you based on what Jesus did. He is thrilled to see you. When you come into his presence, God isn't up there going, oh, brother. Come on, seriously? Hey, deal with some of your stuff before you come in here, okay? No, he's delighted to see you. That's the motivation of the New Testament. Now, Paul quite simply says, is that enough motivation to forgive Those people and even your enemies. That is what sets the Christian church apart, men and women. It's not politics. It's not fighting the culture war. Those may be necessary things to do. It is the fact that we indiscriminately love everyone. Everyone gets Jesus' love. No one is excluded. This church is open to everybody, right? You come, and we're all here. We've all been forgiven. We're not denying anybody to come and receive the love and forgiveness of Jesus. All sounds great until you actually apply it. Okay, so now you got that person that just bugs you, right? Just bugs you. By the way, writing this sermon was such a bummer because I, you know, the Lord laid somebody on my mind, and I'm like, oh, but Lord, really, this is for them. I'm your humble conduit of crud. So I, I, I set up a meeting. I'm going to have a meeting and, and sit down with this person, and we need to talk things out. I mean, there's, we can't let this become bitterness. Uh, so we, we, we set up that meeting. 
But what do I need to do before the meeting ever starts? Here are some things. One, I need to, I need to struggle to forgive this person privately. God, I forgive this person for hurting me. Now, if you're not there, you're not there. Don't fake it. I love what Lewis said. Don't pray what ought to be in you. Pray what's actually in you. Okay? So read the Psalms. I come to God and I say, God, I know I'm supposed to forgive this person. I know I've been forgiven for everything. It just makes me feel horrible because I do not want to forget this person. By the way, Everett Worthington, a Christian researcher, top guy on forgiveness, says when your justice meter is out of whack is when it's really hard to forgive. When you feel like an injustice has been done towards you and the other person does not own it, that's when forgiveness is really hard, but we still need to forgive. So I wrestle with the Lord saying, Lord, I'm, man, do you know what that person did to me? That person doesn't deserve any of this. That's when the Holy Spirit shows up. says, okay, let me get you this straight. They don't deserve it. They've done a great wrong towards you. Can we go back to Calvary for a second? Right? What did you do to God, and did you deserve any of it? That's when I pray for social justice. Okay, so (laughs) do it specifically. So when you do forgive a person, you forgive them. What makes that really hard is, and by the way, can absolutely backfire on you, is one, they didn't ask for forgiveness. So do not sit down with a person. The first words is, oh, by the way, dad. By the way, um, spouse, I just want you to know I forgive you for not making me a priority in the marriage. Wow, that was really big of you to do that. Thank you, right? Boy, that can backfire in a heartbeat. But when you forgive, you say, you know, it's a conversation, but eventually God's saying forgive, right? Stephen Covey said, begin with the end in mind, famous psychologist, begin with the end in mind. Guess what the end is, folks? It's forgiveness. God's asking you to forgive. Doesn't matter if that person ever asked for forgiveness, you're to forgive. In your heart, you're to forgive. It, it, by the way, I'm not talking reconciliation at this point. I'm talking forgiveness. That's a t- takes two to reconcile. It takes one to forgive. Right? So we are to forgive. Uh, do it generously. Let's settle this issue and get on with our relationship. Right? We need to move past this. And by the way, some of you might be thinking, it's just time. It's just time for the phone call to be made. It's just time to send the email. Say, you know what? We need to talk. By the way, it's hard because maybe you think that it should be my dad contacting me. It should be that person contacting me. But Jesus is saying, my spiritual ones, you act. Blessed are the peacemakers. Boy, I know I've done things like that myself, right? I mean, own the fact that you're not perfect in this. So Noreen and I are going to speak in Sacramento at this marriage conference, and I swear to you, couples, we just don't let them get away with, oh, it's all my husband's fault. It's all my wife's fault. No, it doesn't work that way. We all bring things to the relationship. Uh, we all have done, we could have done things better when it comes to certain situations, you know? One time I said, after I spoke at a marriage conference, I said to my wife, I'm so sorry I do like half of everything I just said this weekend. And Noreen said, half? <laughs> right? Okay, so. Now, here's, here's a horrible criteria we share with people at a family life marriage conference. Okay? Have you forgiven? Well, I don't know. I think so. Okay, here's a quick checklist. Oh, this is not good. Okay, number one, you do not tell anybody about what they did to you. You don't need to tell anybody. You've forgiven them. Now, I'm not talking about a counselor, right? The church has great counselors. You can sign up for one. Uh, I'm not talking about that trusted one or two confidants that are praying for you. No, you still might need to process. But generally speaking, I don't need to talk about this anymore because I've forgiven this person for that. Okay? Number two, 
You accept the matter of total forgiveness as a life sentence. We're done with this. We don't need to bring it up. All right, Marlene Dietrich, a wife who forgives her husband's sins in the morning doesn't need to reheat them for dinner. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that you might not need to process later, right? I'm not saying that a husband and wife who has trust issues and a betrayal of trust, forgiveness can happen. We still might need to talk about how to rebuild trust, right? But it's with a totally different attitude. Uh, listen, this isn't about punishing you anymore. There's nothing to punish. But we've got to talk about how to rebuild the trust in our marriage or church or corporation or anything. Oh, this is the worst. This I, this, I hate this one. There have been times I've absolutely tricked myself into believing I've forgiven a person. Absolutely thought, it's done deal. And then I evoke this one. And I think, well, I'm now going to pray for that person that they be... No, I'm not going to pray for that person that they be blessed because they just don't deserve it. Holy Spirit, yeah, stop, Holy Spirit. I know exactly what you're about to say. I didn't deserve it at the cross. I know... So now it's time for me to go back to God and say, God, I think I have some work to do because I'm not praying that this person is blessed. I don't want to. I don't think they deserve it. My justice meter is still out of whack, right? So what are the hindrances? Well, let me mention two. One, failing to deal with intrapersonal communication. You know what interpersonal communication is between two individuals? Intrapersonal communication is the most important, and that's the communication you have with yourself. Right? We call it self-talk is the common uh, word for it. So um, studies have been done right, about a person. Do you have positive thoughts or negative thoughts? That determines your relationship with a person. You know how you look at a certain person and you just think of the positives, right? Uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called Blink, which is all about us intuitively picking up on whether people like you or not. A good vibe or a bad vibe you get from a person, right? So again, I need to deal with my intrapersonal communication. I need to look at that person, and I need to do two things. I need to stop my negative thoughts, and I need to start a positive spiral. Remember we talked about positive spiral a couple uh, weeks ago? Uh, So one, when I have that negative thought, right, I look at you, and I'm like, oh, I need to stop that. Paul says, take every thought captive. But how do you do that? Well, let me give you one way that I do it. It's called the Jesus Prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. One of the oldest prayers of the entire New Testament. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. So I look at that person, and the negative thought comes. I say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Okay, good. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. A person brings up their name. Oh, Lord Jesus, have mercy By the way, don't tell a person what you're doing, because that's like a backstab, you know what I mean? Like, oh, hang on for a second. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? No, no, no. So I got to stop the negative, but I got to get the positive, right? Now, listen, there's a couple ways to do this. My wife and I, on certain occasions, right, when we're in a funk, all of us are in a funk, sometime or another, we have said periodically, the day is not going to end without us complimenting each other. We're going to find a compliment. I've got to tell you what, if you're really in a funk, that first compliment's the hardest, isn't it? That's the hardest. You want to say to a person, hey, you weren't that much of a jerk today. <laughs> so here's the deal. Let me be really transparent, very quickly. I was in a funk with my dad for years, for years. I was bitter towards him. Right? I just, I just was angry towards him, right? One day I was speaking at a family life conference with the vice president of Promise Keepers. After I finished speaking about my dad, he says, do you mind if I offer you some advice? What are you supposed to say to the vice president of Promise Keepers? No, I'm good, really, I'm just good. <laughs> I said, no, what? He said, you are judging your dad with your generation's love language. 
Your generation's love language is you go to every practice. You play catch in the backyard. You tickle each other. You say you love each other all the time. That was not your dad's generation's love language. Did your dad ever leave your mom? No. Did he work jobs? You said up front he worked like triple shifts. Yeah. Did he keep the electricity on? Did he pay, help pay for college? Yes. That was his generation's love language. How's he doing? Wow. And you know what? For the first time, I had positive thoughts towards my dad. Right? We need to pull the picture back. Right? Hey, not, not a great wife. Yeah, but are you still married? Is that a, a person came up to me at a family life conference and says, my husband doesn't do one positive thing in this marriage. He doesn't do one thing. I looked at her and I said, is he here at the conference? She goes, yeah. <laughs> her response literally was like, oh. <laughs> seriously, seriously. <laughs> Number two. Number two, failing to adopt an overall lifestyle that will allow you to bless and forgive. We're not talking a technique. This isn't a parlor trick. Remember what Paul said, be compassionate, be kind. That means every day we're going to the Lord. Every day we're saying, Lord, transform me, help me, right, with my attitudes, my thoughts. I love what L. Gregory Jones says, neither should forgiveness be confined to a word to be spoken, a feeling to be felt, or an isolated action to be done. Rather, it involves a way of life to be lived in fidelity to God's kingdom. Uh, quick um, story and then an assignment. So one of my heroes is um, Corey Tenboom. Corey and her sister Betsy was in Ravensbrück concentration camp. Uh, while in the concentration camp, Betsy had a vision from the Lord that she would be released, her and her sister, and they would do three things. One of them was create an area where former concentration camp guards could come and receive forgiveness from those that they had persecuted. She absolutely had received a vision from God that she's going to survive raising the book. If you know the story, uh, Corey is released on a clerical error and Betsy dies in Ravensbrück. Right? So Corey is now struggling with this. She's preaching in Berlin on forgiveness. A German uh, man walks up to her and says, Corey, to think we're all forgiven by Christ and holds out his hand. She could not shake his hand. Felt like the loser of the year, right? She's preaching on forgiveness and can't forgive this German. Went to her priest. She said, I don't, what's going on? She said, Corey, forgiveness is like a bell. Don't yank the bell. When you yank it, it reverberates. If you don't yank it, the bell's eventually going to calm down. Stop yanking on it. So men and women, we need to, first step, we've got to stop yanking on it. When we think of that person in this church that really bugs us, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? Maybe we make a phone call and say, we've we got to get past this. Right? We've got to deal with it. Right? Last. I love the fact that next week is Holy Communion Sunday. If you want the most sacred act the church does, it's Holy Communion. Sacred. So next week, let's prepare for it. Starting today, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, every day, let's go before the Lord saying, on Sunday, I'm going to take Holy Communion. I'm asking you to examine my life right now. I'm asking you to inspect all my relationships. I'm asking you whether I should make a hard phone call, send out a hard email saying, I think we need to talk. Right? Those of you who claim to be spiritual, those of you who claim to have been Christian for a long time, guess what? God's saying, tag, you're it. You're my varsity. I want you to act. And, and, and to go before God and say, God, inspect me. I, I love, my, my wife comes from, um, her family comes from the Catholic tradition, Irish Catholic. So when we go to Mass with them, whenever we visit, we don't partake in communion, but I love how they do it. A priest, the elements aren't passed. A priest stands and you walk right up to the priest, and he holds that wafer, and he looks you right in the eye. And he says, this is the body of Christ broken for you, and puts it on your tongue. 
That's a powerful moment. Do you believe that? Do you believe 2,000 years ago God died for you? That you were worth it to endure that kind of pain and separation from the Father? Do you believe that? Do you believe all your sins are forgiven, past, present, future? Do you believe that God is gracious towards you? He lavishes you with grace. If that's true, and by the way, it's okay not to be there. It's okay to say, I don't think I fully own that. He's simply saying, take all that forgiveness and I'll give it to people. Give it to people. And I promise you, I will minister through your kind actions. So I'm going to pray for us that this week we do two things. One, every day we prepare for what's coming on Sunday, which is Holy Communion. Second, we ask God to inspect us as we move towards this holy moment in the church on Sunday. So let me pray for us. Father, we come before you and we are humbled by your death. We're humbled that Jesus would die for us. We were the one. We were the lost coin. We were the lost sheep. We were the prodigal. And when we decided to come, you ran towards us. Father, I pray for us as we prepare for communion that each day we'd be reminded of the depth of your love and sacrifice and each day we would say, inspect us. What is it we need to do? Like King David, search my heart. Father, I pray for some hard conversations this week. I pray for some deep wrestling with our self-talk towards others. We do this for Jesus. We do it for his sake, for his glory, for his church. Thank you. Prepare us for what's coming on Sunday. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.